Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which you talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, is Matt Risby. Hello, Matt. Hey, man. And also joining us is Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How are you? Hello. Well, Matt and I were just uh, comparing Husk uh, because we're both starting to feel a bit ill. Mm. But you know what? Feeling reasonably chipper. I'm looking forward to looking back on 2019 which for me on various levels was the yeariest year that ever did year um so there might mm-hmm. be a fair bit to uh, to get through but yeah let's just focus on films shall we yeah let's let's get into it this is our end of the year episode in which we look back on the year in film and the consensus shot reverse shot top 10 of the year which we'll get to in a moment but first we'll talk about some of the biggest box office hits of the year because you know, it kind of provides a contrast between the films we'll be talking about and celebrating and the films that people actually went to go and see. Because, um, spoilers, there's not a huge amount of uh, overlap between them. The 10th highest grossing film of the year, or for this year, was Nija, which is a Chinese anime, 3D animated CGI film based on a classic novel, which earned $700 million, pretty much all of which came from China, which just in terms of things we've talked about on this show over the years, just illustrates how big the Chinese market is for film, that you can have a film that pretty much only plays in China and a few other, you know, kind of Asian territories and makes, uh, you know, makes a huge enough money to be the 10th highest grossing film of the year. Mm. And it's interesting that, I mean, that's why things like Disney always chases the market in China. Yeah. Um, seemingly an, an endless loss with things like Star Wars, where that does traditionally no business, but they they keep going, they keep chasing that Chinese. Um, it's not dot. What's the Chinese currency? I believe it's the one, uh, Y-U-A-N. Okay, they keep chasing that one. <laughs> and also, it was a weird year for China in terms of their box office because I know this was the year that a lot of Studio Ghibli movies were released there for the first time, and they were all blockbuster smashes. So, really? Yeah, I think Spirited Away like became one of the highest grossing movies, foreign movies ever in Chinese history when it released there or something like that. They all were like films that had never ever been shown there and they all did like absolute gangbuster business this year. So it's yeah, it's a it's a tough nut to crack and no one seems to quite know exactly what Chinese audiences want, at least mm. uh, in, in terms of uh, people who aren't Chinese film executives who, you know, clearly have have a greater sense of the landscape than people who are trying to crack it from the outside tell me ed why are the studio ghibli films being released for the first time is it is it some kind of weird like kind of cultural um when i say cultural i mean like like film industry thing or is it based on a history beef uh, i think it's kind of a mixture of both obviously there's a lot of tension between china and japan going back uh, certainly to World War Two and you know the year the 1930s and then probably uh, before then as well my knowledge of Chinese history is uh, is not as good as uh, I would like I was more of a Korean history major but the I, I think that's part of it also just China in general has always been very restrictive about what foreign movies get shown there and I think it was just a case of them finally relenting to 
pressure because I, as well i think we talked in the past like the ghibli movies are among the most pirated in the world and there is a fairly uh healthy kind of piracy business in china so i think there was just a sense of like well if anyone's going to make money off of this it might as well because some of it may as well go to the chinese government mm. we've got to take a slice what was number nine Number nine was Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw, which earned $758 million. Keeps going and going, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I would like to see next to the franchise uh, Fast and Furious Presents Calvin and Hobbs. Because <laughs> I'm guessing Shaw might be out of action now. I didn't see it. You can tell how I've been keeping up with this. But <laughs> I would quite mm. like to see some Fast Octane action between... A boy and his imaginary tiger friend. They famously had a little push cart. They did, mm. and you know. So the, yeah, that would work. And didn't they film this movie in your like on your street, Emily? Uh, yes, there was some filming of it in town. I wasn't really. It 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 ruined my brunch plans, Matt. So then then I just have a vendetta against whatever you're trying to make. Obviously, so I say I haven't seen it casually. It's out of spite. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, but this was. This is, I think it's kind of interesting how sort of well it did, because that's 758 is obviously a huge amount of money, but it's quite low by the recent standards of the Fast and Furious franchise. So it's interesting thinking, like, clearly there's enough juice there for them to have something just with Fast and Furious branding on, make a lot of money, but not enough to kind of really make people think, oh, we have to go and see this because it's a fast and furious film there's a real sense of like ah it's not a proper one though is it mm-hmm. like it's not got it's not got la familia in it is um what's his face in it uh ludicrous no uh he is definitely the uh the x factor that really supercharges those films yeah that's what i've always assumed number eight we have a movie that i haven't seen but i'm pretty i'm fairly sure you've seen matt disney's aladdin which earned one just over a billion dollars oh that is Hot garbage, that movie. It's really poor. I'm going to surprise you, but I don't think Guy Ritchie has ever seen a musical before or a film which should be enjoyed because it's really bad. It's really poor. It's like I saw quite a few, I say quite a few, two of the live-action Disney remakes this year, and they were both in the same, much the same boat. They're like, you know, the the films that they're remaking have a certain magic and a real kind of like uh, vibrancy to them. And then when you make it kind of, all real and that it's crap mm. <laughs> it's just not very good and aladdin was just so flat and boring and all the musical numbers that like you know in the in the cartoon like you know literally and figuratively sing and in this it's just like just so perfunctory and drab and and you've got you know will smith in the lead and they managed to make it dull and lifeless it's yeah it's pretty poor when he was actually, mm. he was quite a solid idea for casting for the genie, really, given mm. like it could have been his uh, a callback to his more antic Fresh Prince days. Maybe he wanted to do something different from Robin Williams's legendary vocal performance. But yeah, I, I, I didn't see it either because <laughs> nothing about it appealed. Mm. Yeah, it was it was it was weird because in some places they kind of let him run riot with what he's doing, and then it kind of like is okay, I guess. But then it all tries to fit what Robin Williams did in in the original, and then all of a sudden just rings really hollow and and empty. And there's 
certain, you know, when he's doing all the, the voices and the characters and it switches between him looking like Richard, not Richard Nixon. I get Richard Nixon and, and the legendary American talk show host mixed up. Johnny Carson. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> you can see why. So, yeah, uh, like you lose a lot of that. Yeah, it's a real shame. And even the action's bad. Um, mm. So you'd expect at least Guy Ritchie to do the action bits right. But, yeah, just an, an absolute pointless artifact to exist mm. but yet yeah, still powered its way to a billion dollars <laughs> through sheer sheer nostalgia yeah, crazy. Uh, yeah yeah which is wild uh number seven uh, a movie i don't think any of us watched but i'm pretty sure we all have watched countless memes of and read just endless discourse about uh joker directed by todd phillips which earned 1.062 billion dollars good grief <laughs> poor poor Todd Phillips poor Todd Phillips he wasn't able to make the comedy film that he wanted to make and so he went and made Joker and poor poor him with his billion dollars yeah again one that I haven't seen and I think so little in terms of like actual releases have appealed to me and I wonder if that's it like a lot of marketing campaigns now are about for, to drive people to go into the cinema is to have something clickbaity around it. Mm. And I think everything mm-hmm. that was coming out with Venice um, in terms of like standing ovations and people saying, oh, this is brilliant, but like I'm concerned some people will take it to heart. And fortunately, it doesn't seem that anyone has done anything off the back of uh, being inspired by Joker shall we say? I feel like the media desperately wanted that to happen. Yeah, like totally, like irresponsibly almost trying to make more of what what it was. And I mean, the visuals look quite interesting. I would like to see it at some point, but again, it's something that I wasn't invested enough to spend, you know, as I now see things money-wise, I'm not going to spend over a month's worth of Amazon Prime to go and sit in the cinema and see it. Mm. And I think that's part of it. Like, And this year has taught me so much about how my cinema viewing behaviour and attitudes have completely changed from even maybe three years ago. As ticket prices get higher, I'm not going to go and do that to myself. And that's what it felt. Joker felt like all of the hoo-ha around it I was like I'm not gonna do this act of self-harm <laughs> um mm. even though Mark Maron's in it and I I quite like those sort of visuals I like that time and people I know who have seen it even though they said it was even though they liked it um said you know it doesn't manage to be a superhero you know a comic book film and it doesn't manage to be a kind of 70s drama it doesn't actually manage to say much about mental health is it just a vehicle for hacking phoenix uh, is he going to get nominated in war season? That's what, what I'm kind of wondering about because it's weird how it got released on the festival circuit quite a way away, you know, from upcoming the upcoming awards season. And because, you know, of course, that's all starting again. Um, mm-hmm. all, the, all the relentless cycle of life. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Is it, Maybe if we watch it, will it just be a flash in the pan? Were people, were people kind of being trying to make it out like it was more than it actually was in terms of its Mm. significance, positive or negative? That certainly seems like it could be the case. I also am probably going to see it at some point, certainly if it gets a Best Picture nomination, which people seem to think 
is possible because you know it it really does fill that niche of a movie that got pretty good reviews and you know has a fairly flashy lead performance and also was very popular so it kind of gives the academy the chance to nominate kind of a big blockbuster for something and say oh we're not all just kind of like out of touch elitists or whatever yeah and i do think that i'm certainly very interested in it certainly from a you know where the industry is now perspective because it is probably among the most profitable films on this list because it cost very, very little. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's a very rare example of a studio putting out a mid-budget movie because I think it only cost about 50 or $60 million because they did say, hey, we're not going to do it big and flashy. We're going to do this thing that's kind of the king of comedy, but with the Joker and all this sort of stuff, which I think is interesting as you know an attempt to do something different with you know the dominant form of so much of american contemporary blockbuster cinema to to say hey what if we try and tell these stories in a way that doesn't require 300 million dollar budgets and six films of setup you know mm-hmm. but at the same time like or even the positive reviews of it to me just kind of made it seem like a fairly vapid movie and i have no problem with kind of like vapid movies if they are particularly kind of stylish because style can become substance in its own respect if you know there's enough interesting going on in it but you know from what i saw in the trailers it didn't suggest necessarily that uh that that was really there however i will always press i will always um treasure the movie for the number of um joker step memes Mm -hmm. that came out of it i really enjoyed seeing that sequence set to a variety of different songs not recorded by a pedophile that Mm -hmm. was nice (laughs) um and it did make also when i saw the actual uh scene someone posting the scene with the original music just being like that doesn't even fit i don't know why they would choose that song it's really weird um and also it made for one of my favorite moments in the comedy bang bang christmas special this week this year where paul f Tompkins as santa claus comes in and just goes ho 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 the the death bells, the dance of death, and <laughs> just like for no reason, um, just really made me laugh. But um, yeah, I, it's it's weird. I um, didn't see it, and I wasn't particularly enamoured in seeing it when I saw the trailer. Mm. Then when the word from Venice came out that it was actually pretty good, I was like, oh, I am now interested in seeing it. And then Todd Phillips opened his mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I'm not interested. I'm yeah. not interested at all. I think also it's not been great him being on like round tables with like Greta Gerwig and Scorsese <laughs> recently. Mm. It's kind of like, even if I had seen the movie, even if I had liked it, I'm not entirely sure he's he deserves to be in that conversation just because every time he talks about the movie, he just sounds like a colossal asshole who doesn't really seem to have a particularly, it uh, doesn't really seem to have anything interesting to say about his work or the choices that went into it. Like a big, um, a big complainer and very entitled. And the thing that scares me about that figure is, is that amazing that it's managed to make that money in spite of his comments, or is that money made majority audience who agree with his comments? I think the majority yeah. just don't read them, don't read them. Don't, <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah. I think it's very much a, a focus for people who are maybe reading too much into movies. Yeah. <laughs> they they read his comments, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, it's. It's interesting to kind of think about what exactly that worldview of the movie potentially says about the people who watched it and liked it, or if it's just a case of like, you know, it's a very popular character 
and they made a movie with him as the main figure. So, you know, there's nothing really to be read into it apart, uh, beyond that. Mm. I did a bit of a um, a scientific bit of field research, um, and it's a small sample size, um, but I have found that the people who loved the Joker also hated Last Jedi. Mm. Intriguing. Intriguing. Number six, a movie uh, that I, I did see and uh, liked very much. The first on this list that I've seen, uh, and... Uh, the only one I liked is uh, Toy Story 4, the mm. fourth film in yes. the Toy Story franchise, funnily enough. A movie that um, didn't really need to exist because it, they kind of felt like they'd put it, left it all on the field with the third one. But uh, which I thought was very funny, very sweet. You know, it did a lot of the things that Toy Story has always done very well and, you know, had unlike a lot of other films on this list, had themes that it wanted to explore and things it wanted to say about ageing and growing up and, you know, what it means to leave an old life behind and things like that. And, you know, it was just kind of like really nicely played by everyone. Tony Hale's very good. I love Forky. You know, there's there's not a lot to dislike in it. Mm. Like you said, it didn't need to happen, but it didn't ruin anything else. It didn't, be, yeah. it didn't, have, it didn't become the one we had to ignore. Yeah. It earned its welcome, I think. And it was much more middle-aged in terms of its concerns and mm. the body horror aspects of it were genuinely quite terrifying, I think because they were unexpected. Mm. And I think what's nice about Toy Story 4 <laughs> in particular is that there wasn't there was even redemption for a villain character. And yes. I think at its core it was like everyone does just want to be loved and belong. And what's the insistence of whether you're a toy or trash if you make someone happy? I did like it. I also just enjoyed um, Bo Peep getting into trousers. That was much more um, <laughs> that's much more efficient for herding sheep, really. Mm. Mm. I love the way that in the space of a twenty-year period or twenty-five-year period, the Toy Story movies have become. Hey, what would what would happen if your toys came alive while you weren't there? To what if toys ha- suffered deep existential dread <laughs> every second? <laughs> and that was kind of a, that's not where I saw that series going. Mm. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting that people posted comparisons between the opening of Toy Story Four and scenes from Toy Story One because they both feature dogs, and mm-hmm. it was very it was very weird seeing just how much. Because I don't really think of just how much, you know, like the Pixar aesthetic and just their technological ability has grown over the past 20 years or so because Mm. they so rarely revisit the same world. So you don't really think about, you know, oh, A Bug's Life looks like so much worse than Monsters Inc. because they've got such different styles. But you were really like, oh, yeah, they really just hadn't got the technology to make a dog look good in 1995. (laughs) And now it's like photorealistic. It is super strange. And I imagine it would be very weird if you were showing all of those films to, you know, to a kid. And just the question is like, what happened to dogs in this world in uh, in the course of the 20 years? It's very weird. Mm, yeah, Pixar. If the planet is still going in 20 years, then we'll be uh, chatting about the live action version. Mm, yeah. Another uh, Disney film at number five. Uh, it is Captain Marvel, which earned... billion. Uh, This was the first of the MCU movies to come out this year. There were three. All three of them are in the top ten. 
Uh, I thought this one was fine. It was fine. <laughs> uh, I wish it had been better because um, I like Brie Larson a lot as an actor, and I think it was it was nice to see them introduce uh, a character like Captain Marvel who isn't terribly well known to a big audience and and all of that. And it was great that you know the team behind Sugar were given a huge amount of money to make a big blockbuster. But I just kind of feel like you know amnesia subplots and like stories where someone doesn't know who they are until the end it's very hard to really kind of get invested in them as a person and so i spent the whole of the movie just being kind of like this would be it would have been nicer if we had had more of a movie you know like an iron man thing where someone knows who they are and that is tested as opposed Mm -hmm. to someone spending the whole movie being like but who am i really and you know Mm. that that was very hard for them to kind of get a handle on her. And I think it also didn't help Brie Larson kind of get a handle on the character, which she seemed to have a, a stronger grasp of for what little she was in Endgame. Mm. Um, it was fun watching Brie Larson and Sam Jackson just kind of rolling around chatting shit. Mm. That was kind of, that was nice. But as a film, it was just fine. Just fine. Yeah. Ben Mendelsohn, good. Uh, I, I greatly enjoyed his performance in it, um, particularly them just being like ah keep your keep your accent for once mm, doesn't matter be right yeah <laughs> and then another mcu movie at four spider-man far from home which earned 1.131 billion dollars uh i didn't actually see this one uh it i think it came out when i was just like super busy at work and i just couldn't find the time for it um but it i liked the previous one and tom holland's very charming and i was interested to see what uh, Jake Gyllenhaal would do with Mysterio so I'm looking forward to catching up with it at some point um, mm-hmm. but yeah I think like the first one it seemed like it would be perfectly fine entertainment uh, it's nowhere near as good as the first one okay um, but it it is not without its merits it it did feel way less thought out uh, as a film um, but the Mysterio the Mysterio stuff's cool Mm. Uh, I enjoyed that. Um, is it is it going to be as good as Mr. Music though? What is going to be as good as Mr. Music? I That's mean, true. I mean, it's such a high bar though, Matt. Mm. And I haven't even seen it yet. All I've seen is the little <laughs> clip on an endless loop in my mind when I close my eyes. <laughs> uh, someone posted a picture of Jake Gyllenhaal in Prince of Persia and him as Mr. Music, and they were like, "No, no one's decade had quite the arc that." Jake Gyllenhaal's had because uh, yeah he is I've, I've really enjoyed how weird he has allowed himself to be over the last certainly over the last like five years years or so certainly I think being in a bunch of not particularly good blockbusters and thinking eh, this doesn't really seem to satisfy me in any way seems to have uh, sent him on a journey into doing a lot more interesting and fun stuff which uh, is is nice to see you just saying Prince of Persia there reminded me that he was in Prince of Persia <laughs> Mm. yeah that can't be good for anyone <laughs> yeah a a piece of casting that you could not get away with now <laughs> mm. i mean they'd fucking try yes uh yes jake gillenhall uh, Gemma artisan also incredibly persian mm. um ben kingsley uh, almost persian mm-hmm. he's, he's he is indian alfred molina kind of anything he's everything That's he is kind of the how modern he's... day anthony quinn <laughs> in third another disney movie there's a pattern emerging emerging um 
is Frozen 2, the most recent of the films released on this list, which has so far earned $1.167 billion. I have yet to get around to it. Um, I do want to because I do like the first one. Uh, Emily, I know that you've seen uh, Frozen 2. What did you think of it? I did. I really loved it. I think it is um, a brilliant progression from the original. I would argue Mm -hmm. better because it is darker and is essentially based on a plot hole of like, oh, why is one magic out of the Mm -hmm. sisters and delves into that. But it deals with a lot more adult stuff about uncertainty or the unknown, as Idina Menzel um, blares out. And it's quite refreshing in, in some aspects. I think it is a lot to do with anxiety and change and fear but it's also just like packed to the rafters with bangers the animation is beautiful in terms Mm. of exploring more of the of the world and the lands in which they inhabit the voice acting is brilliant the singing is great and there was also a lot of dead mum stuff that really got me so i could be entertained and grieve all at once which mm. is you know now what i'm looking for in in terms of my uh, my cinema viewing i'm still i'm just a bit stunned even though it is you know not only a disney film but one of the tentpole disney films that we all knew was going to come out around about this time this year um it's still amazing that it is in that position having only been out what six 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 weeks five weeks in mm. the uk at least anyway like that's staggering and in terms of the pattern emerging, it's all Disney. Emily does not like that, but Emily liked Frozen 2. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Disney. Um, it's Disney! They, they, still have more, they still have more to come. Oh, God. In a, a year in which they really started to just strip mine all of the things that people liked about their work in the 90s. Probably their biggest triumph in terms of just making a ton of money and leaving like pretty much no lasting impression on anyone. They put out a new version of The Lion King, which earned $1.656 billion and <sighs> hilariously has been nominated for Best Animated Picture at the Golden Globes, which I wow. find very, very funny and very appropriate because it is an animated movie, uh, despite what they say. Uh, I didn't see it because the trailers looked incredibly boring to me i don't care about how photorealistic you can get the lions because um the just whenever they showed the pictures i was just like there is nothing behind the eyes for any of these characters they don't have any kind of like of the expressiveness of the original i heard some of the songs and they all sounded just so much blander uh, than the original ones and yeah i just i i just had no interest in having my nostalgia stoked uh by having to go and watch a new version of the lion king with act even if you know full of actors and performers i like but kind of doing a facsimile facsimile of something that i do like mm. every time i saw one of those posters i just heard Werner herzog uh, <laughs> it was like I don't see a friend, just a killer <laughs> with a board passing interest in food. That was more Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm sorry, I can't really do two Teutonic voices. I can't, do one. I can't even do one. I can only really do a South African accent, but that's another story. 
But yeah, there is no there is no secret world of the lions. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah, it just it just looked very very boring to me. And uh, mm. uh, I, I had it I had it queued up ready to go. Like I watched, I was Amazon did a thing where towards the end of the year, like a lot of the kind of big films of the year were on kind of cheap before you're a Prime member or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I kind of started burning through a lot of stuff I'd missed and. I just watched the Dumbo live action remake, and I just I just tapped out at, at the uh, mm. the Aladdin one, and I just tapped out at Lion King. I couldn't go any further. Yeah, you did your duty, Matt. <laughs> yeah. And number one again, Disney is Avengers Endgame, which earned two point seven nine seven million dollars. Yeah, billion dollars, and is now the highest grossing film of all time. And uh, yeah, fair play to them; they did it. Well done, them. Yeah, they wanted it so bad, it happened. But yeah, that was a fun movie. I it it didn't really click with me. I think the way that it a lot of people did, even though I have seen all of the preceding movies leading up to it, I didn't really feel a particularly strong emotion to it. And I think for the large part, and I think this kind of also gets into what we talked about on like the Rise of Skywalker episode last week. Like, there's so much in it that just feels like metatextual pandering to the audience that to me particularly during the last like hour when Mm. you just have that huge battle where everyone's involved where after everyone showed up from the portals which was cool and very good and like very affecting i was just completely checked out and it's like uh it's like oh look at all the women superheroes we have who have never interacted with each other before and don't have any kind of pre-existing relationship they're all here Yay! <laughs> or you know, like that for me was the exact equivalent of you know Chewie being given his medal, where <laughs> it's just kind of like this means nothing in the world of the movie. This is purely a moment to kind of get people in the audience to be like, "Woo, yay! Thing I recognize." Mm. But I do like the first two thirds of that movie. I think the first two thirds of that movie are really fun. Yeah, it's fine. It's perfectly serviceable. I'm not sure. I'm I'm desperate to see it again. Mm. Um, I'm just, it's just thing, isn't it? It's a, as an achievement. I kind of can doff my cap to them. It's not hard. It's as we've seen with the Rise of Skywalker. It's it's hard to uh, provide a satisfying cap to a story, um, mm. and their story was pretty unwieldy. And yeah, they pulled it off. Fair play to them. But it does lead us to the thing. This is something we we kind of don't want to get too much into, like the overarching news stories of the year. But the fact that they announced last week, and it's only going to change more in their favor, that eighty percent of the box office in two thousand nineteen was Disney product, um, mm. which I'm sure is nothing to worry about. Nothing at all. No, not that we're just heading towards a horrific monopoly. That's absolutely fine. No. Mm. And the, yeah, the idea that. There's a story floating around. I don't know how kind of true it is, but the new um, Terrence Malick movie called Hit Something Field Hidden of Wheat or something. Hidden Life. <laughs> Hidden um, there, <laughs> there being there's uh, rumors around. I don't know how true this is, but like stories saying that just kind of like normal cinemas are being charged Marvel rates for that movie, mm. um, and therefore people aren't showing it because no one's going to put that on because people aren't going to see it. Um, in the same numbers that they turn out for Iron Man 6 or whatever. And, you know, I'm sure, again, that's nothing to worry about. Um, we get to the point where, you know, this is so prevalent and they've changed the rules a little bit and all of a sudden you've got a Disney cinema in your town and 
they're the only ones who can afford to show Star Wars and Marvel and Pixar and Disney and yeah, all of a sudden the other cinemas don't really have a whole lot to show. Mm. Yeah, I think it's. I think next year is going to be maybe the most telling for what the future of cinema certainly in the US looks like because we've kind of talked about this in the past as well I, I feel as if this was a peak year for, for for Disney just kind of how it all ramped up they had they released kind of remakes of two of the biggest hits of their 90s that have this cross-generational appeal that you know kind of meant a lot to a lot of people and were going to be big hits they had the culmination of this 10 years of storytelling they'd done with marvel they had the ninth star wars movie they had you know kind of like the fourth film in their biggest pixar franchise they had the, the sequel to their biggest original animated hit in forever all coming out at the same time and those are conditions that i don't think they're likely to ever reproduce i, I think like next year the balance would probably be a little more equitable because they don't really have that much on the slate that you would look at and say oh this is gonna dominate the cinema for for a long time and obviously this doesn't fix the underlying problems of they bought fox they they yeah. you know we're one major studio less and the studio that they did buy was one of the ones that one of the few ones that was really kind of putting out a lot of kind of interesting lower budget stuff like you know they, they fox were the company that also put out that obviously hidden life but also they put out ad astra this year which wasn't a movie that other studios were clamoring to put out they put out ford v ferrari we're also known as le mans 66 in in other territories and so those technically are all disney products but they are not movies that disney necessarily would have commissioned given all the other stuff that they do so like there's obviously deeper structural stuff that are bad but i think it's it, I think next year it'll be interesting to see if other studios are able to respond to this kind of big Disney year and, you know, kind of forge a path to, to kind of make their own space. Because I do think there are opportunities for other studios to do other things and to maybe, you know, kind of fill the voids that are being left by Disney as Disney focuses more on huge, big, tentpole stuff and ignore the lower budget stuff. Mm, yeah, I mean... Fox Searchlight is now Disney, right? Yes. So Disney put out Jojo Rabbit <laughs> right mm -hmm. towards the end of the year. Kind of odd. But like, I wonder how much longer that will continue because that was something that probably existed before Disney bought Fox. Mm, yeah, they did go on a, a project cancelling spree. I mm. remember there was a story about that. They cancelled a lot of stuff that was in the pipeline and fired a bunch of people. So yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure that... Fox Searchlight will be the kind of font of interesting mid mid to low budget stuff that it has been before, which is yeah, a terrible shame. Mm. So we'll uh, move from uh, the the you know stuff we weren't so positive about in cinema in 20 to, uh, 2019 to uh, stuff that we were very, very positive about by talking about the Shot Reverse Shot top 10 films of the year list. So for uh, people who are unfamiliar with our process, what we do every year is each of us submits our top 10. I, you know, we assign points to each position and add up the points for the films that appear on multiple lists and come up with a consensus pick. So this is based on three separate lists that we all submitted. As such, there's some films that, you know, were very high on, say, you know, on, on my list that weren't on Emily and Matt's, uh, which, you know, didn't make the cut. So before we get into the discussion of the 10 
that we uh, you know came to, uh, together as a group to decide were the best of the year we'll talk about uh, some of our honorable mentions emily would you like to kick us off with your honorable mentions yes i have got um three uh, to very quickly go through here um homecoming a film by beyonce mm. uh which you and i ed sort of touched on a bit um as kind of the springboard for our concert film chat earlier in the year um yes i just think it's quite incredible to be able to see Beyonce who is pretty much just one of the if not the biggest recording artist in the world living right now to see her process again what she allows us to see of her process but you can't deny that she's just immensely dedicated and the kind of gentle thread throughout of a very I think a very historically based like the context that she put into Homecoming is immense. And I think just a, a step beyond the visual references of Lemonade, for example, as a visual mm. album, you know, the historically black um, colleges and universities going all the way, stretching all the way back to like Egyptian Queens and how she manages to thread it all together to create this incredible, you know, depiction of, the black experience like you know mm. it was she made history headlining glastonbury but in terms of going to coachella i think there's something really she's got this kind of demure but very blatant at the same time kind of activism to go into coachella which is renowned as one of the like whitest <laughs> like american music festivals and to headline it with you know something that is undeniably and gloriously celebrating of of black culture and one that she grew up in and that did has never been able to take center stage you know the history of segregation mm. behind historically black colleges and universities and to make that center stage and, and, and to have this just have that literally center stage i think is brilliant and the film itself is such an interesting watch because you do see everything that she puts into it and that none of that happens by accident like, yes, there's vision, but there's talent and there's graft from her and a, and a swathe of people. And I just think, as a film, it's one of the most exhilarating things you can watch. Mm-hmm. It was pretty good. I have to admit, I kind of forgot that was this year. I thought it, I was, this, it was last year, but... It was this was, year, Matt, yeah. Oh, mate, that could have changed everything. <laughs> Sorry, Beyonce. I think she'll forgive you. <laughs> She's good like that. I mean, if <laughs> she forgave Jay-Z. Moving on to Ooh. my next honourable mention is Us. Mm, yes. Mm, great movie. Which, yeah, I, I thought it was solid. I have spoken about it a fair few times in various episodes this year, so I'll keep it brief. I just think Jordan Peele is such an interesting filmmaker and is challenging himself, but still really getting his groove on in horror genre. The performances are amazing. I think it starts to tweak itself a little bit towards the final act, but it manages to be brilliantly funny and tight. And Lupita Nyong'o is fantastic and she needs to be in many more a starring role. Cause this is her first lead role since winning her Oscar, which let's not forget mm. was for 12 years a slave. So it's the first time mm-hmm. that we actually see her in something that shows her, you know, the range that that particular vocal styling will be haunting me forever and ever but mm-hmm. i think it's it's great to see jordan peele again a filmmaker who is 
making, I think, some of the most interesting socially conscious horror films. I mean, I didn't see Midsummer this year and Ed, you and I have spoken about like A24 and, and things like that. But I do think Jordan Peele is becoming like the contemporary horror master, even if there are elements of things that don't quite work. I think he's just going for it. And that's so much more exciting than a lot of stuff that is uh, that is out there. And my final uh, honourable mention is Untouchable um, by mm. uh, Ursula McFarlane. And that was one you and I watched, Matt, at, uh, at mm-hmm. Sheffield Doc Fest. And I'm amazed that it didn't get picked up and, and shown more more widely because I think it is such a brilliantly forensic documentary into Harvey Weinstein and because what it does is it gives it the film is comprised of interviews with um, his accusers um, and giving them a voice and I think it's very hard to come away from it just seeing the vol the sheer volume of testimonies given by the women who have very bravely agreed to actually even be on film <laughs> over mm. decades in different areas of being related to him. You know, I, I I'd say it's pretty pretty undeniable. I mean, maybe I would, but I think as a as a film, it's um, a very difficult watch. That should almost go without saying, but an incredibly like rallying and brave watch i think because you can't come away without being in awe of of these women and of the journalists who are going after him and the stories that come out of it it's just wall to war really um but i think it's such a laser focused documentary as well it doesn't feel sensationalist it just puts things very plainly and matter of factly fantastic matt what are your uh, honorable mentions yeah so um i think my favorite movie that hasn't made the final list is uh book smart i know it's a mm-hmm. film that uh emily didn't like i'll be, um, I'll be but... quiet i'll let you this is your end of year treat matt um, i'm not gonna say anything <laughs> but i i really loved it had a lot of fun with it i really liked the film that ed had to convince me actually existed in the first place the film the wwe film directed by stephen merchant <laughs> starring the rock and set in norfolk <laughs> Fighting with my family, which oh my yeah, Ed told me about. Ed told me about on the podcast, and I was like, "That that's not real." That, and then <laughs> I found out it was real. Then I was at a loose end in an afternoon, and I was in town, and I went and watched it. And that film has an absolutely ginormous heart and is hugely likable. Um, and it is on Netflix now uh, in the UK. Um, so just watch it; it's it's really fun. I really liked that movie. I liked us, uh, as Emily said. I really liked uh, the Fire Festival documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really good. Um, that kind of stayed with me throughout the year. And yeah, if Beale Street could talk was technically this year, but I think it's probably got lost in the mix a little bit because it kind of came out really early this year. And yeah, I think those are those are the ones that I kind of really liked. Uh, in addition to us as well, that that didn't make my that didn't make the top ten. Uh, cool. Yeah, that also uh, reminded me. You should probably point out that this list is comprised of movies that came out in the UK this year, because obviously yes. two thirds of the podcast <laughs> live in the UK. So it'd be unfair for me to just flood it with uh, the list with movies that uh, you probably won't be able to see until like March, because mm. uh, that's how 
That's how things work for some reason. But having said that, I'm going to just shout out two movies that I couldn't include in my list because they were ineligible for that reason, which are Parasite and Uncut Gems, which uh, I won't say much about either, but uh, I they are very high in my my best of top 10 or top 30 actually list that I'll be publishing in a few days when I actually sit down and write it and choose the movies. <laughs> but they will be very, very high uh, up in that. I think they're both uh, absolutely wonderful. In terms of movies uh, from my list that didn't make it into um, the top 10, I really liked the documentary for Sama, which is a documentary about the um, ongoing war in Syria and is told from the perspective of a journalist who filmed a lot of the conflict. You know, she was a Syrian journalist who filmed a lot of the conflict as it was going on, but also during the civil war becoming, she became pregnant. So it's also about her getting married and her daughter, Sama being born. And it's a wonderful and heartbreaking and wrenching chronicle of this incredibly tumultuous period in her life and the life of her country and I just thought it was uh, incredibly moving and powerful and just abs- un- just utterly unforgettable. Um, I also really liked Ash's Purest White, the new Zhezhenki uh, movie. I'm probably buttering his name but uh, that, was, that was a wonderful sort of crime movie about a uh, woman who goes to prison for her kind of small time gangster boyfriend then comes out of prison five years later and you know tries to track him down and it's all about the it's about the their their relationship and this kind of love that persists you know maybe perhaps against all logic but also about you know the changing face of china which i think is a thing that informs a lot of uh jengi's uh movies and I would also call out the Beach Bum, the Harmony Corinne movie, which uh, I watched as part of my frantic end of year catch up and which I really, really liked. It's it's just got good vibes. I think that's the best way to describe that movie. It's good vibes, the film. Uh, <laughs> Matthew McConaughey is very great as it as a kind of a, a down and out poet. It's just kind of like trying to scrape by on the, the beach in Miami. It's got just a great cast of of. Uh, people like Snoop Dogg or and um, uh, Jimmy Buffett just kind of like showing up and maybe playing fictional characters, maybe playing themselves. It's hard to tell. The line is very blurred, particularly in Snoop Dogg's case. And also people like Zac Efron and Martin Lawrence showing up for a scene each just to be just just to kind of lose their mind a little bit. And uh, I I really enjoyed that movie. I thought it was a, a hell of a good time. That is all of our honourable mentions. So let's dive into the top 10. And at 10... We have Thunder Road, directed by Jim, Jim Cummings, which I I didn't see the feature film version. I watched the short version that came out a few years ago uh, this year uh, because it, I think it was on a streaming service somewhere and I really, really loved it. But this was on your list, Emily. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Thunder Road? Well, I haven't seen the short and mm. I had heard a little bit of uh, kind of Twitter with rumblings about it and I was like oh I can listen to these rumblings and went to see it and blew me away I think it's a really one of those perfectly seemingly small stories um because it is quite on it's all in this small town and it's just between a few people but there's something lovely about an anti-hero not because he is awful but actually he's very decent and he's trying his best and a lot of stuff gets in his way. 
but his like antagonistic and driving forces are the same and it's his his grief and trying <clears throat> to make things better when things keep seeming to be going against him but it avoids any easy sentimentality for something that is very i think ultimately very hard fought because he's not an awful person he's just a person going through a very difficult time and acting out in quite bizarre ways not the sort of usual ways that you would it ends up becoming like a testament to friendship the opening sequence is one of the best depictions of grief i've ever seen <laughs> um in in tv or film and it manages to have this the comedy aspects the drama aspects because essentially it pushes everything to being grotesque without being implausible and i came away with warm and fuzzies and a very very wet face and i can't recommend it enough as a character study and for something where you come away with a really genuine heartfelt feeling uh just been ad added to uk netflix this week just yes FYI. yes yeah is the opening scene the funeral? Because that's what the short is. The short is just oh. him, him him, at the funeral doing the thing that he does at the funeral. That is exactly it, Ed. That would make a lot of sense. And I can see why it's actually really interesting because that does feel like such a contained short film in itself. Mm, yeah. So it makes sense that the rest of the film sprung from that. But the rest of the film doesn't, even though that opening sequence is spectacular... The rest of the film doesn't feel lacking. It's just mm -hmm. it's it's just a slightly it just goes into a more traditional structure, but it is just one long held shot of someone trying to keep it together whilst they're completely falling it apart, and manages to also yeah be really funny. But you never feel yeah. like you're laughing at someone. I think the tonal balance of it is really deftly handled our number nine film is another uh, one from your list emily it is judy directed by rupert gould yes i mean i came away from this not expecting to have such a connection with it as i did i think it avoids the pitfalls of most biopics where instead of trying to tell a linear chronological story of someone's life i.e as i call them like filmed wikipedia articles it focuses mm. on crucial points and what judy does so well is it shows where she started and where essentially her development was abused to a point that it was stunted and then we see the consequences of that so she remains sympathetic throughout because it does just come through how horribly neglected and abused she was by everyone who really should have cared for her but the tension within it lies in that the thing that she is being propped up and financially pumped for by anyone else is what she genuinely enjoys and is brilliant at. And yet she mm. does want to be with her family, but she is struggling to hold it together and to see someone who seemingly has power and talent who is actually just being passed around and taken advantage of by the majority of people she comes into contact with. It's immensely tragic. And yet the experience of watching it is not a tragic one because it shows the hope and the possibility and what she meant to people, which ends up making it more tragic. Because I went into it knowing it wasn't going to be a happy ending, right? Mm, and yet it yeah. managed to keep the stakes up and show where the failures were instead of just having a monotone, 
this person is heading for inevitable breakdown and a horrific demise. You can see the points where she was trying to help and herself and to be helped. And yet the forces that be, I mean, certain people and say forces as if it's gravity. It's not. We all know what I mean. Ends up making it even more resoundingly moving. I think Jesse Buckley's brilliant. The whole the whole supporting cast are fantastic. Renée Zellweger, I think, smashes it out of the park precisely because she's not focusing on doing a like eerily accurate impression of Judy Garland. Like in terms of singing on on the soundtrack, she doesn't sound like Judy Garland, but she's taken this person and this character and tried to honor the character rather than even though she looks very eerily like Judy at some points, she is trying to profess this woman's life rather than present an illusion of her. And I think it's that grounding that makes Judy such a brilliant experience. What uh, kind of other biopics would you kind of compare it to if you had to, just to kind of give people a sense of of what it's going for? Because there's a lot of biopics that try to you know, try to break the mould and, and, you know, don't quite succeed in this one. Certainly from, from what you said, sounds like it makes it a much more interesting proposition. Yeah, I'd say weirdly, it's hard to say that it actually, like, breaks the mould because I don't, I don't think it does. I think it just avoids pitfalls mm. of most biopics that are just filmed Wikipedia articles. And what I think what Judy does is that it serves her life story in the best way by focusing on the really crucial, dramatic, significant periods of her life, i.e. Sort of as she starts to get famous and towards the end of her mm. career and very, you know, not far off the end of her life. And I think it's quite classically presented. I mean, we're not getting anything like wildly experimental. I think it just focuses on good narrative storytelling rather than trying to like kowtow to people who'd be like oh you missed that bit or this isn't i think it's emotionally authentic mm. and i think oddly like the only other sort of one that springs to mind is pollock which is um mm. ed, ed harris as jackson pollock and mm. it avoids the kind of walk hard dewey cox walk the line as much as i like walk the line don't get me wrong i like walk the line um but it it manages to actually present something a story that everyone knows very well in a in a fresh and and therefore ultimately more respectful way, I think. Mm. That takes us nicely onto our film at number eight, which is Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig, which was on Matt's list, uh, and I liked it. I liked it very much, but it's uh, it was on Matt's list. Matt, why don't you talk to us about Little Women? I'll tell you a little bit of something about Little Women. How small um, aren't they? Yeah, they're pretty small. Um, wow. It's like a kind of Polly Pocket type situation. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've. Like this is a confession I've got now. I've never seen the movie of Little Women, the one with Claire Danes and that in. Although I look back on Letterboxd, and according to that, I have, but I do not remember it. I don't. I haven't read the book, and so I don't know the story at all. So I cried a lot today when I saw it. Um, <laughs> it's quite sad, um, mm. but I liked the film immensely. Um, like another film on our list, which we will get to talk about later, it does breathe a lot of life into uh, the period drama, a kind of genre which has become quite stale um, and kind of all too frequently drifts into cucumber sandwich bullshit. 
uh, which I don't enjoy personally. But I very much loved Little Women. Um, the the chemistry between the sister between the, all the women and some of the men involved uh, was delightful to watch. And you could genuinely believe they were sisters who enjoy punching each other uh, mm-hmm. as much as they do um, gambling around, as is their want. And yeah, I just found it a very affecting. A uh, couple of hours. Um, my wife did have to point did have to point out to me that I'd missed something quite significant in the narrative because I wasn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's classic Risby. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely loved it. Didn't really know what to expect. Um, and but Greta Gerwig, um, I mean, she's two for two, and I mean, this will probably be quite popular in the awards um, times. I guess it's a beloved property. It's a very very good adaptation i guess the film's not the book's not a sci-fi book is it i don't know (laughs) no uh although for 1869 the idea that women had interior lives was was pretty out there Mm. and as someone who's read the book and seen the other versions how does it stack up ed i i liked it a great deal i i had a slight problem with the structure, which um, is different from the book, and it's not that it's different, I dislike it. But, you know, it has this non-linear thing where it's jumping between different points in the narrative. And I think for most of the time it's fine and it makes for kind of some lovely juxtapositions and things like that. But I, for me, it kind of undercuts the the saddest thing that happens in the book and mm-hmm. in the story by having the... I don't want to spoil it because not everyone's seen the book, but I see seen the movies or, or read the books. But basically, kind of like there are two very similar events that happen mm. at different points in the characters' lives. You're getting closer to what I got confused about <laughs> that my yes. wife had to point out to me. And the movie has them both play out simultaneously, and I don't think it works because when you see the earlier thing and you're like, oh, of course person x is fine because we know they're alive seven years later that's kind of weird for the movie to be edited in a way to be like oh my god what's happened oh of course they're fine we know they're fine but then like to immediately go from that to oh no the awful thing did eventually happen yeah i I just i just found that to be the point at which i felt like the structure kind of tripped the movie up but Mm. having said that i think for everything else about the movie is just tremendous the acting's all great i think um saoirse ronan's obviously a wonderful uh, actress florence Pugh is like she had an amazing year you know she's great in this she was great in midsummer which is a movie i didn't particularly like but her performance is kind of impeccable um i didn't see fighting with my family mm-hmm. but i understand she's great in that as well um, she is great in that yeah and you know it's just like bob odenkirk's in it <laughs> which is which is wonderful to see <laughs> uh, always nice to see bob odenkirk show up in like a legitimate movie and not like knock over a thousand thimbles or whatever you would expect him to do in a similar situation yeah i, I think everything else about the movie is like great literally, literally like that that moment in the movie where the structure kind of like does that that why consider to be like a really weird choice is the only thing that mars will otherwise i think is a is a really wonderful follow-up for gerwig and i think that she did a, a tremendous job with mm. a you know a beloved a beloved book that has been adapted just in a, a, you know dozens upon dozens of times over the over the years like it's to do it and to do it well when you're up against you know a lot of beloved previous adaptations is a, a very good thing well, I just sort of uh, phased out of all of that because I'm seeing it tomorrow. So, but you know what? Not even really paying attention to the content of what you guys are saying. You've still got very mellifluous voices. I just wanted to point that out. Oh, thank you. 
that's really rude to say I've got a, <laughs> to got I've got a maleficent voice. I think that's what? very rude. Oh. Scandal. Uh, speaking of which, I was trying to look up the movie Maleficent earlier because someone had tweeted about how the second movie was very popular and I was like no it wasn't. It, <laughs> it made way way less money than the first one, but when I typed in Maleficent, the my phone refused to recognize it and it said change it to men have five which is just is way less of a sentence than Maleficent is. But uh, yeah, so that was very weird. Uh, but yes, thank you. Uh, someone at work did say that I have a very authoritative voice, which uh, I found to be a very weird thing to say. Um, but I was kind of like, you know, you're pleased. But at the same time, you're just kind of like, all I was talking about was a server problem. It's not <laughs> the least poetic thing I could be talking about. Okay, so our movie at number seven is The Souvenir, directed by Joanna Hogg. This is the fourth movie that uh, Joanna Hogg has made uh, over the 12 years or so, I think, was her first movie, Unrelated. And uh, I, I would say it's it's probably her second best movie. I really, really love her movie, uh, Archipelago. But this, I think, is is really up there. It stars uh, Honus Winton Byrne as a film student in London in the 80s who enters into a relationship with an older man played by Tom Burke, giving probably my favourite male performance of the year, a, a performance as a man who is just like incredibly charming, but also deeply, deeply flawed. And I just felt that their relationship and what they go through over the course of that movie felt incredibly relatable. I thought that... Hog, who as a writer likes to kind of, it, she's very good at being opaque in a way that doesn't feel frustrating. Like she'll elide around certain details whilst kind of making it clear what's happening. You never feel as if things are being hidden from you. You always feel you know where the characters are emotionally and what's happening in the story. But she doesn't feel like she has to kind of like spell it out or have people kind of talk uh, exactly about what they're feeling in the moment. You know, she's a she's a wonderful writer of people who are very repressed and not really able to talk about their feelings. And um, like I say, uh, uh, Tom Burke is fantastic in it. Honus Winton Burns, very good. Tilda Swinton is uh, in it as her mother, play, which is a very, very good performance by her. Uh, Richard Ayoade is in it in a small role in uh, another brilliant performance, you know, playing someone who is incredibly different to the kind of characters that Richard Ayoade usually plays. He plays uh, probably the most confident man who's ever lived in the uh, <laughs> in the movie. Uh, and, you know, if, if you've followed his career to date, it's absolutely wonderful seeing him kind of be in a movie where he is just playing a character who is entirely comfortable with themselves and not kind of being played as a joke just like a person who exists in a movie and who has seems to have an inner life yeah so i i just think it's it's absolutely wonderful and one of my favorite movies of the year uh, at number six we have a movie that uh, I know we all saw because uh, we did a whole episode on it and uh, it's absolutely wonderful. It is Hustlers, uh, directed by Lorraine Scarafaria. And uh, yes, Emily, this was on your list. Was This, in fact, was your number one film of the year. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Hustlers? It really was, I think, because Hustlers, for me, should be nominated for Best Picture for exactly the reasons mm -hmm. you outlined um, previously. I think it's got amazing central performances. It is a view on society that we haven't seen recently. It manages to not be the big short and tell a much mm. more personal, interesting story of the adaptability of women, the pressures of motherhood, the 
kind of how various industries in America are dependent on each other. I think it's incredibly funny, a very plausible depiction of, of certain friendships that you get really invested in. I think Jennifer Lopez is absolutely brilliant in it. And I think so much of mm. it is about the subtlety of her performance at the end where it changes ever so slightly. And even though, you know, it's not like we needed a sort of journalist asking questions framework, I think it still really works. I think like in terms of, I think this is an action film, <laughs> like mm. um, in terms of how brilliantly the dancing is portrayed, the choreography. And I, yeah, I just think it's really interesting to watch films now as we're looking towards the end of the decade to essentially have a film that has taken us over the like the key points of this decade and the general sort of survival and anxiety and fear I think it manages to capture that and the sort of excess and optimism that happened before the recession brilliantly so Mm. I think and I I think the ensemble cast are just brilliant Mm. Yeah, I just came away from it feeling like giddy and and it managed to, you know, a certain bits are a little bit on the nose, maybe. Like we don't necessarily need like a montage of everything that's just happened. But mm. I think but I think the passion and the sort of romance and integration of identities that happens between Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez is just some one of the best like psychodynamics between characters I've seen in a long old time. Um, and the soundtrack's great. What more do you want? Mm, yeah, it's not a day, not a week goes by that I don't think, I don't have uh, love in this club in my head <laughs> since seeing Custless. Oh, I thought that was about... before you saw it. <laughs> it's oh, it. yeah. <laughs> it, it, that was, it, I, I felt seen. Uh, I felt that it really kind of finally captured my mind. But I do I do often think about the scene of them all, kind of the slow motion scene of them all in the club while that song's playing and just how happy they are. And like you say, how much it captures that pre-crash optimism. And also, you know, the, the optimism we all felt before Crash came out. Um, <laughs> that was a... Uh, but like, I, I do think it captures that so well. And I think that's that's one of the things that's so great about it is how well it captures this sense of like oh man everything was possible everything was great and then suddenly just everything being completely like taken out from under these women and their precarious place in society suddenly being unveiled and how exciting the movie makes that sense of them trying to figure out a way to survive in a new reality i'd just like to say that i liked hustlers too but just because it's got tits and ass in it Oh yeah, did I not? Did I? I thought that was a given because I loved the tits and ass in it. Mm. Loved it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't even pay attention to what was it they were talking about. It's you know. (laughs) Uh, Well, Ed and I just summarized it for you there, Matt. It's fine. Uh, And and did you know that J Lo's fifty? Certainly, the writers of of SNL want you to know that. Okay, so we'll go on to our number five pick. The uh, I think this is going to be the well, the first of, of some contentious picks. It's Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, which uh, was Matt's number two pick and my number nine. So, uh, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about Marriage Story? I mean, I just liked it for the tits and ass. Um, mm. Yeah, no, it's a uh, a very raw, painful film for people 
who like good acting and Sondheim, <laughs> I guess. It's a film, I, I always enjoy a film where something happens in it and I have to look it up later and I don't didn't understand it at the time. And mm-hmm. uh, I have it kind of filled in. I read an article about the musical company, which I have seen, but I didn't like. And um, to have some of that context brought into what was going on in Marriage Story uh, added a layer which, on top of a film that I really not enjoyed, but very much was drawn into and felt every jibe and stab and twist of the knife film, which, again, goes back to a couple of weeks ago where I kind of said I was tired of the the Twitter film discourse. Marriage Story seems to have been memed into the ground and people <laughs> people seem to be able to perfectly assess the film's quality based on a meme of a scene, <laughs> which is kind of crazy to me. And, uh, yeah, the whole thing about whose side are you on seems to miss the entire point of the film. But I I loved it. I, you very rarely get to see Scarlett Johansson acting, which is nice. Uh, playing a white woman for a change, which is good. <laughs> yeah. It's the part she was born to play. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> true. Adam Driver, who I saw someone describe the other day as a sexy fridge, uh, <laughs> which makes perfect sense. You know, doing some incredibly raw work. This, it, I think the, the reason that I'm really upset with the way that people are talking about it is because you can make any serious film look stupid mm. by taking a bit of it out of context and saying, eh, I've been in drama class. I've seen a man and a woman shouting at each other. Um, mm without really thinking too much about it. It feels uh, like a very good companion piece to Squid and the Whale, which mm-hmm. was, that wasn't Noah Baumbach's first film, was it? It's like second film, was it? I, I want to say it was like third or fourth, because he had like one kicking and screaming in yeah, the 90s. Yeah, that's what I know about, yeah. And then there was, I want to say there was one he made, but then he kind of disowned because they like messed with it. Ah, so it was, okay. it, was, it, was, it, was, it was the first film he'd made in quite a while. Uh, mm-hmm. After he after he wrote co-wrote Life Aquatic and kind of had a bit of heat, mm. yeah, it's a great companion piece to that for you, all you divorced movie fans, um, <laughs> and yeah, I I I found it just incredibly powerful. Had a couple of cries in it, two cries out of five. That's the Risby score. Mm. I I really liked uh, Marriage Story as well. I I personally found it to be whilst you know also being being very affecting. Uh, I did find it to be quite funny because Noah Baumbach, I think, is very good at that kind of self-deprecating kind of humor where he he is perhaps more aware than people are willing to give him credit for of how uh, cloistered his world is, and like he very much clearly exists in a world of upper east side uh intellectuals or upper west side whichever the posh one is mm. my knowledge of new york geography is is pretty bad but you know like he's he and i think he's very good at skewering that kind of stuff and like there's lots of incidental lines in that movie that really made me laugh i particularly liked uh adam driver going to see a movie with his son and then just being like oh yeah i call it i cried four times <laughs> just mm. kind of like a weird little detail to to throw in there and yeah i just love the memes that's the, the main thing I took away from it. The memes are good. No. Although I did like the one that that someone did of the argument scene where it was uh, Scarlett Jensen saying like, uh, I offered you grouse! And then Driver pushing the wall and punching the wall and saying, I'd rather have chicken or whatever the joke, the, the lyric is from Cats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I found, I found very funny because my mind had been diseased from Cats. It's amazing that, that we've gone an hour and a quarter without mentioning Cats. I was wondering when we were going to do it. 
lads, I'm afraid I'm going to have to bring the contention here because, Matt, I'll <laughs> let everyone gets one. Matt, you had Booksmart. Ed, mm-hmm. you, you had the souvenir, which I was not keen on, but I was really won over by you liking it. And maybe I need mm-hmm. to readdress that. But, lads, Marriage Story is not the one. It is. <laughs> it is. There is one thing about showing a relationship that's a mess and then there mm. is being a mess. Marriage Story is a sprawling, self-indulgent, like thinking that acting is being very quiet and then being very loud uh, <laughs> mess. It's a, it's a mess. It's a mess. I, I watched it in two stints in the comfort of my own home and still had to pause it and like hold the wall. I don't know how people managed it in cinemas, not just because of bodily functions. I just found, I just couldn't get anything about it. Friends of mine have said like, oh, it's more about the like subtleties and the physical performances. Cause I was 20 minutes in and the dialogue was just so horrific. I couldn't, I kept trying to be charitable cause I am capable of that guys, I promise. And, and, <laughs> and just think, oh, this is, this is some kind of comment about performance and because they live in such performative realms and is this about sort of coming to some some sense of authenticity with each other after essentially like performing their roles of of wife and husband and then round about the 20 minute mark Noah Baumbach must have known what he was doing because then he dropped Laura Dern and I'm like right well now I'm in again because of the Dern and Ray Liotta and Alan Alder that whole kind of divorce industry machine I found so much more interesting then the ins and outs of their specific breakup. I didn't find them particularly redeemable people. You know, there's a sense of like, oh, you know, it's all a bit difficult and, and you know, they have different needs. And I don't know, I think in terms of divorce films, I was like, but you've already made The Squid and the Whale, no bound back. That was, that was brilliant. And yes, this is more about his own experience of divorce and like his generation's experience of divorce. But I did essentially find it just so... Oh, and I and I know I'm a privileged white person, but I was like, God, I cannot take these privileged white people. It does have one of the lines of the year, though, to give it its credit, which is Wallace Shawn, in <laughs> as as mm. the theatre company are just milling about. He comes out with one of the filthiest things in an anecdote that I really hope was improvised because I don't want to give Baumbach the credit for it. And I just think I'm really looking forward to seeing Little Women tomorrow. Because I like to think of Noah Baumbach just like pouring over the edit and being like, Greta, it's going to be great. It's on Netflix and I, it's just going to be so personal and people are going to really appreciate my vulnerability. And she's like, mm, yeah, that's nice, dear. I'm just going to make something incredibly relevant for an entire generation. Cool. You you, you pop along now. Yeah. So <laughs> flumped. <laughs> um, it's it's cool. That, and, and yeah, like... I think everyone this year bounced off a film hard. Mm. For me, um, a film that may surprise some people that isn't here is the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, mm-hmm. which Ed loved. But I just like Emily with Marriage Story. I, it was like being driven into a brick wall, and I, I really hate it sometimes. You know, when there's just something in there immediately that you you can't get round. And there's some yeah. films that you'll per, per, you'll persevere with, and you'll find something in it, even if you don't overall like it. But there's sometimes that a film just kind of like is like a cold bucket of piss in the in the face, and you you instantly just can't you can't get on board with it. 
Um, and what you were describing there, Emily, is very much how I felt about Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. So it's good to know that we all had one this year um, <laughs> where, you know, a film that will dominate lists all, all year um, did mean nothing to us. <laughs> Um, mm. because yeah uh, what was yours Ed did you have something you really bounced off this year yeah Midsummer. just yeah. didn't didn't care for it at all apart from like I said Florence Pugh wonderful performance but I just think that is a movie that has one thing to say and it says it for two and a half hours <laughs> and like it's there's some arresting imagery in there and I, I admire like there's lots of subliminal stuff in there that people have kind of like pointed out in online and things like that, which is cool. I really like the, you know, the, like if you look at the trees at a certain point, you see the outline of Florence Pugh's sister who has killed herself. Um, you know, you see the outline of her face, uh, which is creepy and weird. And there's some cool psychedelic stuff in there. But like, you know, in the first half hour of that movie, it's like, okay, she's grieving and her boyfriend isn't really up to the task of dealing with it, but they can't bring themselves to end the relationship because of the grief, you know, it makes it so complicated. And then that's just, it doesn't have anything else to say other than that. Like the exact same point is made by the next two hours of the movie, but, you know, you get to see people's heads crushed with hammers every mm. so often. Which, to be honest, which is like, marriage story could have done with, just saying. Mm, I think most movies can probably do a, a hammer to the head once or twice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I agree. Or to to see someone wearing Will Poulter's face, mm. which uh, yeah, that 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 was certainly an image from Midsummer that I haven't shaken out of my mind. It was very very disturbing. But yeah, so yeah, if if we're talking about movies, we bounced off of whew, yeah, that's 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 in my bottom five for the year. But uh, yeah, but enough enough negativity. Well, maybe some negativity on this <laughs> next one. Our number four film of the year, which is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, which was Matt's number one and my number ten of the year. Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about Knives Out? Well, I realise it for the tits and arse. Um, <laughs> see, I can do a joke three times. Shakespeare. Um, yeah. I love whodunits, but mm. I don't like the endings of whodunits because, for me, the mystery is always way more interesting than the reveal because the reveal is always just some guy for mm. some reason. And the joy of whodunits is how elaborate it is or how it's solved or whatever. But I always come out of them feeling fairly hollow. And for the Knives Out, um, which I felt was Ryan Johnson enjoying himself immensely, having had an, a fairly unenjoyable last couple of years uh, dealing with the fallout of his Star Wars movie, basically kind of I lost myself completely in that mystery to the point where it was getting to the reveal and I had forgot there'd been a murder. <laughs> Um, because <laughs> I was I was so lost in the performances and the kind of how intricate it all was and um, how essentially it's just a movie full of plot and just how easily tangled up in the web of, of, of deceit and lie and counter lie and misinformation I was. And that's very rare for me. I'm, I'm not someone who likes to sit and work things out or try and catch twists or whatever. But for me to actually forget that I was watching a murder mystery film for the best part of two hours is quite something. Um, I loved everyone in it. I loved all the performances. Uh, I loved Anna Armas. I loved uh, Chris Evans, who, again, like Scarlett Johansson, you don't get to see act very often. So it's nice um, to uh, kind of see him, although without a beard, for shame. And yeah, Daniel Craig having the time of his absolute life, which, yeah, I, I just it's probably the most fun I had in the cinema all year. And just like to say, like I were coming out of um, Little Women today and the Knives Out screening was sold out. 
which is like, you know, two and a half, three weeks, four weeks into its run now. And it's done really well. I think it, it went through 100 million uh, domestic this week, I think. Yeah. Which is, you know, really great news for original movies. And when I say original, I don't mean it's original movie in the sense that it's a whodunit of like people trapped in a house and one of them did it and they're all assholes. As in, it's not based on existing property, um, mm. which is uh, refreshing to see in a world where Disney rules everything. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed Knives Out as well. I think also in terms of it doing very well in the US, one of the things that I found very surprising about it is that uh, I went to see it the week before it opened wide mm-hmm. because they did a completely unadvertised thing where just like 700 theatres in the country just showed it a week early to build mm-hmm. word of mouth, which is not something that I was familiar with happening. Like usually, obviously, you have a platform release or whatever, but like people know a movie's coming out. Like th- I only knew this was coming out because I was like, uh, what what should I go see this weekend? And like the theatre was said, oh, Knives Out is on. I was like pretty sure it's not out for a week so i went to the theater expecting it to be some sort of mistake and mm. then they were like oh no we're showing it yeah go go on in and mm. go and watch it, it. it was and the same uh, here Ed. i i saw it on the monday before it came out on the thursday because they i think all the cinemas that have membership schemes they it was a members only screening like the week uh, before and i only accidentally found out about it because an email about it went into my junk folder <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I got the last of two tickets um, wow. that were there. So it was pretty cool to see it ahead. But I think that's something they did over here as well, just to kind of pump the word of mouth. Cause that's kind of film. This is the exact kind of film that works on that kind of uh, basis. Yeah, because it's, it's also not to, you know, kind of like stereotype the potential audience, but it's very clearly a, a film that's trying to aim for, you know, a, a an older, more mature audience, you know, like so that it's, it's basically been like, this isn't superhero stuff. This is, you know, a, something that you would not usually see in a cinema because these kind of stories are confined to TV now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of works. But yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, it was a fun, fun time uh, at the cinema. Uh, I think it's got a wonderful ensemble i i laughed a great deal at john don uh, john donson at don johnson saying saying the words masturbating to a dead deer mm-hmm. which uh i found very very funny just the way he said it and just it's just a funny phrase and yeah just like it was nice to see like someone like michael shannon get to play someone who's not a hundred percent menacing for once mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> someone who's kind of ineffective You've all made excellent points, lad, but lad one and lad two, but it, it, it was fine. It was, it was fine. I think it, everything that you've said there is that it is unique given everything else that is out there. I do not think it is a unique film in itself. I think it's a welcome breath of fresh air, but it is ultimately fine. And you know what? That is also okay. That's, that's really not a problem, but I don't think it is spectacular. I think when it's funny, it's really funny, but it just kind of fizzles out, I think, because it sets itself up to be much cleverer and twistier than it ends up being. I wanted something a bit more frantic at the end. I didn't actually care that much that it was one person. I wanted a bit more ingenuity towards the end. Like you were saying, Matt, like the mystery part is the fun part, but I just, it did feel like it had everything there to have a much twistier more entertaining endings i think it set up stuff so well and i just think with an ensemble cast like that as lovely as anna de honest is 
to make it essentially then become like her and Daniel Craig and a sort of commentary on if you're just good and and pure and these people are and Trump's shit that's the social context I was like yeah either let me completely have fun (laughs) or don't be so on the nose about it you know I think that was my Mm. feeling but you know what I had fun when I watched it and it's fine yeah I think if if I had kind of like a, a major gripe with it I do feel as if the initial twist of what the movie does of basically not letting you know who the main character is certainly not from the advertising the advert like it was kind of unclear who the main character was going to be and then what that character's role is going to be in the movie I think that is a really fun twist and it was something that I was not prepared for and like I thought oh that's really good but then it kind yeah it kind of doesn't have any other twists that really rival that Mm. and like you say it, it does kind of present a really clever it presents itself as being very clever to begin with and then for the rest of the time it's like oh this is really fun and like this is really enjoyable but yeah maybe doesn't doesn't break the mold in a major way but it's it's you know it's a very well made big commercial studio movie in a genre that has kind of been left to linger and you know kind of kind of happy about that okay so we'll go on to our number three film which is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. This was number one on my list and number eight on Matt's, so I will talk about it a little bit. Uh, This is Martin Scorsese's adaptation of the book I Heard You Paint Houses, which is also technically the title of the movie because The Irishman doesn't show up at any point until the end credits, and even then it's in smaller font than I Heard You Paint Houses, so clearly Scorsese wanted it to be I heard you have paint houses uh, about Frank Sheeran, a kind of fixer for the uh, the mob in uh, working out of Philadelphia in the throughout the 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 sixties, the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties, and his relationship with uh, various people within the mob, most notably uh, Russell Buffalino, played by uh, Joe Pesci, but also his relationship working for Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters and his potential involvement in Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. And it's a movie that Scorsese has been trying to make for quite a number of years. Certainly whenever I looked at his IMDb page for, for like the last 15 years or so, it was always listed as like his next project and then everything else kind of came ahead of it because it was just hard to get the budget made for what he wanted to do was this whole uh, de-aging technology of of the characters having uh, De Niro and uh, Joe Pesci and uh, Al Pacino play themselves at different points over their lives and de-aging them digitally and you know it was, it was too expensive for other studios to do so he ended up going to Netflix who were willing to foot the bill for that sort of stuff and uh, for me, I thought that it was worth the expense. I think it's a wonderful movie, a, a wonderfully sad, melancholy movie, very much a movie made by and about people considering what their legacy is at the end of their lives. Obviously, Scorsese, you know, as far as everyone knows, is kind of very spry and sprightly, and certainly his Insta game is very, very fierce. So he's obviously doing well. But, you know, he is, he is you know, in his 70s, he, he probably doesn't have a huge number more movies left, and this feels like him, you know, kind of looking back on the kind of movies that he has made over the course of his life and wondering what it was all about. And the story of Frank Sheeran is a great medium for that, because obviously... He, 
Sheeran himself is a man who, um, if you believe his stories, and there are certainly people who dispute the story that he told in I Heard You Paint Houses, um, you know, there's, there, that's, that's no, by no mean definitive. Um, but he is certainly someone who did a lot of very terrible things and, you know, at the end of his life is wondering what the hell was that all worth it if at the end of it you, you end up just being an old man in a home where no one remembers the important things that you think you did. And uh, I, I personally found it to be uh, immensely affecting and totally worth the three and a half hours, particularly because I saw it in a theatre where, you oh, know, wow. you do have to kind of sit, you do have to kind of sit with it in a single sitting and be like, okay, yeah, I'm really feeling the weight of this man's life and just how ultimately devastating his actions proved to be for his his own life. Mm, I second all of those things that Ed said. There wasn't an awful lot in addition that I could really chuck in there other than to point out that the discourse was also very frustrating <laughs> around this film. Um, coming off the back of the whole Scorsese Marvel nonsense. Um, mm. and also the fact that, yes, it's a long film. Um, for people who grew up watching the Lord of the Rings films at the cinemas, I don't really see why this is a problem. Uh, or people who are happy to watch, you know, fucking nine hours of Rivendale. Riverdale? Rivendale? Riverdale. Rivendale, <laughs> the fucking hip high school series set in Middle Earth's trendiest spa. Um, Starring just- young Elrond to Fox. Yeah, you <laughs> bet he does. Um, but yeah, it, like the performances were, were incredible. It was great to see Joe Pesci coming out of retirement mm-hmm. or semi-retirement um, and just kind of effortlessly picking it up. And yeah, I mean, it's, I, you know, I love kind of when you see an old master doing something vital late in their career. Um, and this very much fit that mold for me. Uh, I thought it was remarkable. And I think it's also... Like obviously, obviously, we talked about uh, not you. You're not uh, particularly liking Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I think between that and and the Irishman, it was really nice to see Al Pacino in stuff like being really engaged and having fun, mm. and not kind of doing the stuff that he has kind of become known for or that has become his kind of shtick. Like in this, there are moments when Jimmy Hoffa is big because Jimmy Hoffa was a very big personality, and that kind of is what his problem was um, ultimately that came back to bite him but you know this feels like um pacino being really dialed into a character and not mm. just being like okay how can i do a load of uh load of shtick yeah how can i scream <laughs> <laughs> our number two movie and again like i said this is based on uk release dates so this came out early in the year but is marielle heller's can you ever forgive me starring Melissa McCarthy. Uh, this was my number two pick, so I will I will talk about it. This also was the only movie that appeared on all three of our lists. Oh. Um, Can You Ever Forgive Me uh, stars Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel, a writer who in the uh, 80s kind of began uh, doing literary forgeries as a result of her fiction and her kind of non-fiction work not doing particularly well not being picked up not being bought and so she produced all these like really impeccable literary forgeries which you know kind of made her a ton of money and also you know were in some ways the most fulfilling writing that she had ever done because she was kind of taking all this knowledge that she had of these kind of like great 
writers and their lives and suddenly being like okay what would they say in this situation and kind of creating this extra life to them and uh, I just thought it was really wonderful Melissa McCarthy gives one of her best performances Richard D. Grant is absolutely incredible uh, in his kind of like small supporting role and I, I just really love the kind of quiet calm autumnal quality for the film particularly you know like whenever it's really depicting a cold new york winter it's one of those movies where you feel as if your own body temperature is dropping five degrees uh as you're watching it and there's something to be said about a movie that can really evoke a specific kind of like time and place like that couldn't agree more i think it's fab um i think it's really interesting in terms of talking about sort of rights to being able to tell a story. Melissa McCarthy is absolutely incredible. Speaking about people who are acting, we don't really get to see acts very often. She's wonderful. Richard e. Grant is remarkable and it's really funny and it manages to be a small story about a certain set of people um, that has wider ramifications without having to hit them too hard. Um, I think it's great and I cannot wait for um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, which is Mariel Heller's uh, next film, but obviously because... Uh, you and I, Matt, are chained to these islands. Um, it'll be a while before mm. we get to see that. Yeah, mm. uh, I have seen it and it's very good. But uh, so we'll go on to our number one film of the year. Um, there was a tie at number one uh, with between this and Can You Ever Forgive Me, which was ultimately decided by a coin toss. So <laughs> you can say there's not really much in it between these two movies. And this was another movie that came out technically last year in the US, but came out very early in the UK. It is... The Favourite, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. This was your number two pick of the year, Emily, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about The Favourite? Well, I'd say it probably is my favourite, and I'm definitely in Whee! it. Whee! And I'm definitely in it for the tits and arse. Pew, pew. Yeah, um, boy. It was actually the <laughs> 1st of January of this year that it was released, and... Uh-huh. I remember, I think I saw it, it was probably the 2nd of January, which is a bank holiday here in Scotland. And I remember thinking, it's going to be very, very hard to top this. I mean, Hustlers mm. did a glorious job. And I think because Hustlers is just such a perfect film of 2019, right? I just think it is the film of 2019. But I think the favourite is joint best film that came out this year, even though it doesn't encapsulate hustlers which is a great film but also to me very much the film of 2019 where to start with a favorite stunning performances olivia coleman mm-hmm. deserves everything she got beautifully filmed by robbie ryan who interestingly enough also uh, was cinematographer on marriage story so you know mm. looked nice i feigned to mention that but it did i'll give it that down to down to mr ryan and it manages to have this spectacularly bitchy it's a bitchy period drama and i Mm. love that it's about power dynamics it's about hidden exchanges of power dirty deals politics it's very funny like it's up there with the thick of it in terms of insults and top swearing Mm. and yet it manages to have such a devastating ending where it's not all fun and games like there's real stakes throughout and yet it's just at the end where it manages to I think really hit very hard yeah absolutely loved it yeah I think it's uh, absolutely wonderful I think it's it's up there with Dogtooth as Yorgos Lanthimos's best I think it's really nice having seen him do a couple of movies in the English language 
um, recently to see him work from someone else's script because I yeah. do feel that as much as I enjoy Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Lobster, there is a sense of alienation to his writing which works for those stories but I think wouldn't have worked for this one. I do think that ultimately you do need to believe that these characters are real people and that they care about each other and the tension between how human the characters feel and how distancing and alienating the style is really does add to the sense of this being a hermetically sealed little world of the rich and the privileged and what it takes for Emma Stone's character to stay within that bubble having you know come from this place of disgrace at the start of the movie and like you say that it's just like or like uh, like Matt said earlier about you know the period drama being something that can feel very cucumber sandwichy it was very nice to see one that was so immaculately presented but in spirit very disrespectful to this kind of uh, genre that can be so kind of like tired and stale it looks like mm. a cucumber sandwich but when you put it in your mouth it's just full of popping candy and crack <laughs> i mean it's not it's not a combination that i ask for at subway also most surprising about a boy reunion on screen uh with mm. rachel vice yeah. and nicholas holt so there you go yeah Mm, yeah yeah i I love the way it approached the period drama like you know it like it just did not give a shit <laughs> it didn't no really no fucks were given even though a lot of i'm gonna stop myself there <laughs> congratulations to yorgos lampanos and the favorite for being our number one film of the year and thank you all to for listening to the show during uh 2019 hopefully see here see all of you in uh 2020 as well but for now uh, i'll say it's goodbye from me and for the last time ever, goodbye from me. And uh, goodbye from me. Love you, Matt. Oh, thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.